You are listening to Hit Play, Not Pause, a feisty menopause podcast for active, performance-minded women. I am your host, Celine Yeager. Each week, I bring you advice from athletes, scientists, researchers, and other experts to help you feel and perform your best, no matter what your hormones are doing. This show is a production of Live Feisty Media. Hello, strong, feisty women. So we've got an important one for you this week. I sat down with sports nutritionist and exercise physiologist Heidi Skolnick to talk all about low energy availability and relative energy deficiency in sport, which are just long scientific ways to say you're not eating enough. And this is something I know comes up a lot on the show. We are women who have been steeped in diet culture our whole lives. We've had commercials, celebrities, heck, maybe even doctors and coaches tell us that thinner is better. Many of us have struggled with disordered eating, if not outright eating disorders our whole lives. I will raise my hand and say that I am in that camp. You know, I had an eating disorder very early on in my life, in my teens, and that just never leaves you. You know, you you can get better. But you always have that gremlin living somewhere in your mind. And uh, I know I'm not alone. I'm far from alone on that one. And the menopause transition can be a precarious time for all of this as our hormones change, our bodies change, and we struggle to gain control through the only means many of us know, quote unquote, watching what we eat. And when active women don't eat enough, there are many downstream consequences that can reverberate for years, if not for life. And I don't mean to be hyperbolic or to be scary. It's just true. Hormonal health, bone health, heart health, mental health, metabolic health, it all comes from how we fuel this amazing human machine we walk around in. And Heidi speaks about all of it simply beautifully. Which shouldn't be a surprise since communicating these ideas is a huge part of her job. Heidi is not only a thought leader in her field, but also has written and co-authored best-selling books like The Whole Body Reset, which just came out, and The Athlete Triad Playbook. And I'll put links to both of those in the show notes. She has been part of the Women's Sports Medicine Center at Hospital for Special Surgery for over 20 years. She oversees the nutrition program at the Juilliard School and the School of American Ballet. And she has served as a team nutritionist for the New York Knicks, the Giants, and the Mets. She has also sat on the board of the National Osteoporosis Foundation and currently sits on the Medical Advisory Committee of the National Menopause Foundation. And you can learn all about her and her work at HeidiSkolnick.com. I'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. Before we get to it, if you haven't heard, on December 3rd, we are having our first ever Hit Play, Not Pause virtual summit. And I'm super stoked about this one. We have an amazing lineup, including sessions on hormones and menopausal hormone therapy, intuitive eating for active women, injury prevention during menopause, pelvic health and vaginal health, and much, much more. And... And it's only 20 bucks. And if you can't watch it on that day, you can watch the replays later at your convenience. So there's really no excuse to not just head on over to feistymenopause.com right now and buy your ticket. And I will put a link to that in the show notes as well. As always, I invite you to follow us at Feisty Menopause at Instagram and Facebook. Sign up for my weekly blog at feistymenopause.com. And please share the show with your friends and on your socials. It helps us to continue to grow and for me to be able to bring you great guests every single week. All right. Very quick thanks to NutriSense for their continued support of the show. I know a lot of women have been using it and learning about their blood sugar. And it's it's really pretty cool technology and it's only going to get better. So thank you, NutriSense for your support. And enough of me. Let's have a few words about our awesome sponsors and get on with the show. Good sleep. The one thing that sets you up for a great workout and a good day is quality sleep. We talk about it all the time here on the show, which is why I'm stoked to have Lagoon Sleep as a new sponsor. Because one of the most overlooked tools in a great sleep toolbox is the thing you literally rest your head on eight hours a night, your pillow. A quality pillow is everything. Otherwise, you end up tossing, turning, punching, and folding your pillow, waking up with neck pain, and all the stuff that happens when your pillow doesn't meet your personal comfort needs. Say hello to the most comfortable sleep you've ever had with Lagoon. They start you out with a two-minute personalized pillow quiz and then pair you with your perfect pillow. 
I got the Otter, a cooling adjustable pillow that is perfect for side sleepers who run warm at night like I do. It is a dream. It's fully adjustable, so I was able to get the perfect loft and support, and the cooling feature is everything. As someone who turned into a furnace every evening before menopause, I appreciate that the Otter is stuffed with shredded gel-infused memory foam, which instead of trapping heat from my neck and head, draws it away and dissipates it. It's truly delightful. I'm a good sleeper, and Otter has taken it to the next level with both support and cooling. Put my head down, good night, Irene. My aura ring confirms what little tossing and turning I was doing is gone. The beauty of the pillow quiz is you can get the perfect pillow that you need to and make your sleep the best sleep you can have. Go to lagoonsleep.com slash hit play and take the two minute quiz to find your perfect match and then use the code hit play all caps one word for 15% off your first purchase. Sweet dreams. For decades, running shoes have been researched, tested and designed for men. Brands have relied on the shrink it and pink it approach to sell male shoes to female customers. That's why we are stoked to be working with Hedda's. Hedda's designs athletic footwear for women that elevates performance, safety, and style. Hedda's has unlocked the science behind women's biomechanics through dedicated research and creates better shoes for women's performance. Some of Hedda's special features include a lower ankle collar to reduce rubbing on women's ankle bones, a breathable mesh toe box to allow for ventilation and accommodate female toe shape, a more narrow and reductive heel cup to reduce heel slippage and take pressure off the Achilles, a rounded instep that creates a snug fit through the middle to match the curvature of a woman's foot and supercritical foam and a PBEX plate in the midsole to keep our legs going when the going gets tough. Hedda's has three shoe models designed for different sessions, the Alma Cruise for your long runs, the Alma Tempo for training days, and the Alma Speed for pushing the pace. I've been running in the Alma Tempos and they are a pleasure to train in. You can get your own pair of Hedda's at Hedda's.com and use the code FEISTY20, that's all caps, FEISTY20, for 20% off. Check it out today. We'll put a clickable link in the show notes to make it a snap. All right, Heidi, I really, really, really appreciate your time today. We are doing, we, Feisty Media, who has a whole host of podcasts, are doing all shows on low energy availability and Red S this this week because, because it's really important and, and we're seeing it more. I think maybe women are just more open about it now on social media. You know, it's, I've been an athlete a long time and this has been something that's been around for a long, long time, right? But um, it's definitely something that is becoming more open. And in this audience, which is perimenopause, menopause, I think that these things can show up in more insidious ways. And, you know, I really just wanted to dive in. So I really appreciate it. I know that this is a big part of your work. Yeah, I have to say, you know, it's interesting because you say that people are more open about it. Um, and I think they're, they're, they are. It's also there's easier ways to share it because right um but i also think and i still see this happen now is there's those aha moments like you may be experiencing it but you there's no name to it and it seems very like it's only you only you are struggling or you don't even know there's not a name to what your struggle is and then when you begin to see what the symptomology is or to realize especially in younger women oh not getting my period isn't actually okay they actually don't know that um so i i I am shocked at, on one hand, and thrilled how much attention it's getting now. But as you said, being having been in this field and doing this work for over 20 years, you know, being in the room when Barbara Drinkwater, Dr. Barbara Drinkwater, who really was, you know, one of the ones, was the one who really put a name to it and had sort of had this theory and then did all the research or not, you know, and started the research. It's been around a long time without a lot of attention where it really has gone over the radar, where doctors were not recognizing it and addressing it, where young women were still being given hormone therapy, not hormone therapy, but the pill to just sort of induce the period and not fix the problem. And so I still think it's, when you're in it like I am, I feel like of course everybody knows this. Right, I understand that phenomenon very well. (laughs) 
But and I just came back from FINCI, which is within the food and nutrition world. That's the annual conference for the um, the the uh, one of the leading organizations in the field, and they're not all sports dietitians. And so there, those those sessions that covered this, which yay, there were sessions that covered it, but they were packed with dietitians were just first hearing about it. You go to a sports dietitian conference, everybody knows, but not again. It's not like even in the nutrition world, everybody recognizes this. Wow, that's a really great point because you know a lot of women will see nutritionists, but not necessarily a sports nutritionist or dietitian per se. So that's a excellent point. Yeah, it's kind of again, it's stunning because when I'm in it every day and I I I sort of start getting bored with myself like of course you know this, right? Like I don't want to be repetitive kind of thing already, you know, but it's just not true. And I work with a lot of um interns in nutrition and they all will say I wish someone had told me this cuz there there are a lot of them are athletes and they they nobody told them and and these are young you know they're young graduate school and they're like this was me in high school I didn't make the connection I didn't know and I asked them but if someone told you would have cha- would you have changed your behavior and they say no really so sure I mean if yeah. I knew now I knew then sure but at the time I was so driven by my sport and so which is part of the challenge is that you know that they and, and so driven for that thin ideal that probably it wouldn't have changed their mind until they got hurt until they got hurt. Right. Until they got hurt and started putting the pieces together and started understanding and started to do the work. Right. Cause it's slow. It, it doesn't, it doesn't always change with just knowledge. Knowledge doesn't always change behavior. Um, injury often changes behavior, but even then not always. Um, so, you know, it, it's like unpeeling the onion because you got to look at what some of the obstacles are that, that are getting in the way. Sometimes it's really just, oh, I didn't know. And sure, I'll eat more. And other times it's more complicated. Yeah. Yeah. So so let's lie, lay down some of this groundwork because we're using these terminology and we want to make sure everybody's on the same page with us to start. So and I will say when I first read about Red S, as it's being called, Relative Energy Deficiency in Sport, I thought that that terminology was replacing the female triad terminology, which was sort of the loss of bone, the loss of the period, you know, that that piece. Um, But I see that the triad exists in context of red S. So can we can you just unpack that a little bit so we are all on the same page as we go forward? So first, let's even describe what low energy availability is, because we say that like everybody knows it. But again, I think it's a little confusing because you're out there doing the work and not everybody. I mean, you know, you're working out, you're training for a sport, you're able to go to practices or do your conditioning. And you may or may not feel fatigued, especially in the beginning. You might even feel more energetic. But when you're not eating enough, we have our physiology. If we weren't athletes, we still have our physiology that we have to feed. We have to feed our organs, our heart, our lungs, our kidneys, our, right? And all of the uh, growth, repair, recovery, all of that. So when we aren't taking in enough calories, we have energy available to work out. So what do you mean I don't have enough energy? I'm working out. But then we have low energy available for the rest of our physiology. That's that low energy availability, what is left and available to our body for all of that repair and work and recovery and growth and basic maintenance isn't available. And our body begins to repartition where the energy goes to go to what's most immediate, which is that exercise in the moment. And we don't put it toward things like our hormonal system gets disrupted. So the female, so it's not, first of all, let me also say that the female athlete triad is where we began. And now it's called the athlete triad because we do recognize that males also experience low energy availability and it does have repercussions on their health and well-being. However, we're just learning more and more. It may be that for males, it takes a little bit um, they're not quite as sensitive to that energy disruption within day, or it may take more a longer length of time and a lower amount to have the same impact or similar impact, um, but it does happen. And of course, they can't see it through lack of their um, period every month, but it is their testosterone is lowered, their libido is lowered, sperm motility, you know, we're learning more and more and it can affect their bone health as well. So back to it. So the, so the athlete triad, three things, low energy availability, disrupts your hormonal system, 
is functional hormonal system. You don't have the estrogen, which is imperative for bone health. For you, you know, we're breaking down and building up bone. We're also probably not getting in, you know, the calories, the, the protein, the calories, the calcium, and all the other nutrients we need. That combined creates poor bone health, and we're more likely to have bone um, injuries as well as later on suffer, or it depends on life, you know, suffer from low bone health or osteopenia or osteoporosis and be more likely. So again, most of my work is in the younger population where we're talking about, you know, athletes who are trying to reach their peak bone mass. We reach peak bone, we 90% of our bone for life is formed by age 19. And in our 20s, we complete that. that. That's when we have peak bone mass for the rest of our life. And then we use that. Think of it like a bone bank. We have that yeah. bone bank. If we're taking in calcium, we don't have to take out of the bone bank. If we're not taking in calcium as we get older, then we have to take more out of our bones. And again, can have early osteoporosis. But if we don't have peak bone mass, if we're not even starting with a strong bank account, that's early. We never, you know, that's early osteoporosis. So we think of osteoporosis as a geriatric disease, but it's really a pediatric disease that manifests a little bit later in life. So what we do in our early days impacts our strength in our later days. So then make the um, jump to red S, like what is, what defines that? So that's the triad. And that's where a lot of the work and research had been. And, and as a female advocate, you know, advocate for female athletes and well-being, it was sort of exciting because that was the one area where we were doing, put it, putting research into female athletes. But now in recognition that males have it too. And as the, you know, world expanded, then the U.S. Olympic Committee, their uh, group came together and created this other, you know, recognizing that it really went beyond bone health and, and went beyond our um, hormonal system, that it really can affect every single system in the body. Now, it's not quite as well flushed out and researched, but I know when I show that model to my athletes, they recognize, right, what is it affecting your psychological health? I mean, which comes first? You know, are you, uh, you know, we could, we could, again, tease that out for different people, probably different things. But when you're underfed, it affects your brain, right? Your brain needs it. Your um, endocrine system, your cardiovascular system, your strength, your, you know, it affects all these different systems in your body. Um, and that the triad sits within that model of reds, if that makes sense. Right. Yes. Right. So, and then, and then the reds model actually also then shows how it affects performance, which again, I think so many athletes can relate to. Um, so I, I could go over that whole circle if you want. You know, we're talking about your immune system. We're talking about your metabolic system. You know, our metabolism lowers when we under fuel, right? We're conserving energy. It affects growth and development, your cardiovascular, gastrointestinal. I mean, I cannot tell you how many athletes that I see in one of the manifestations for sure is that their, their whole um, gastric system slowed down, right? And so now they're not pushing food through their 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 stomach as right? the, the food doesn't move, you don't have enough. And, and you're and also you slowed down digestion. So you're feeling bloated and uncomfortable, and you don't want to eat, but you're hungry. And so really, what you need to do is eat more. Yeah, which must feel like counterintuitive to them, right? But then once you understand what's happening, then that makes a big difference. As a lifelong runner and cyclist, I am stoked to announce that Tifosi Optics has come on as a podcast sponsor. The beauty of Tifosi sports glasses is that they hit all the marks. They are shatterproof polycarbonate, so the lenses not only reduce glare, but also offer scratch resistance and complete eye protection. They stay put. They have little hydrophilic rubber nose pads that actually get more grippy the more you sweat, so they stay secure and don't slide down your face even when you're running in sauna-like conditions. No matter what sport you do, they have a shade for your activity, including tennis, fishing, pickleball, running, cycling, and just hanging out at the beach. And they are super reasonably well-priced, which is very hard to find in a sea of overpriced eyewear. And they just look freaking rad. So head on over to tifosioptics.com and use the code FM, capital F, and capital M, like feisty menopause, number 20, FM20, to get 20% off your order today. I'll put a clickable link in the show notes to make it a snap. Musculoskeletal health is everything during menopause. 
Everyone knows how much I love Joint Health Plus from Prevenex, which has helped me get back to distance running after arthritic toes stopped me in my tracks. Now they have a product that has become my go-to for muscle strength and recovery, Muscle Health Plus. Muscle Health Plus contains all the key ingredients we talk about on this show, like creatine monohydrate, essential amino acids, and branched-chain amino acids, plus even more cutting-edge ingredients like HMB and estrogen that are scientifically shown to increase muscle growth, recovery, and strength. I use it every day during my early morning lifting sessions, and there's no question that it helps my power during those workouts and my recovery after. Plus, I love having everything I need from the best high-quality ingredients in one reasonably priced shake. I've also heard from fellow users who have had bloating or GI upset in the past from creatine that haven't had any of that with Muscle Health Plus. I make my shake with almond milk and espresso, but it's also good with ice cold water, which makes the flavor really pop. As always, you can get 15% off your first order with the code HIPPLAY, all caps, one word, at Previnex.com. That's HIPPLAY, all caps, one word, at Previnex.com. Do your muscles a favor and head on over and get some today. Yeah, I, w- I would love to go into it to a, a more on on a, a few of those pieces for sure. I, you know, I, I I saw your workbook, which was really really interesting, and I'll put a link to that in the show notes because I think it's very insightful for people. Um, I, I I really enjoyed reading about how the energy availability impacts that hormonal control center of the hypothalamus of the brain, and I think many women have the impression if they don't eat enough, they may not have enough energy, but they don't realize all these downstream effects on hormone production and organ system and metabolism. So can can you speak a bit to that, like what's going on in that control center? Right. So there's a cascade of events that happens when any, you know, when we are, when we're not eating enough and it's affecting, as I said, every single really system in your body. But when you're not getting your period, it's called functional hypothalamic amenorrhea. And so it's starting actually from a feedback mechanism. And so part of it is a diagnosis of differentiation and and making sure there isn't something else going on like you're pregnant um, or a tumor or something else but pretty much we can tell once we take a dietary history but anyway so what happens is that you don't get this feedback mechanism your hypothalamus sends uh isn't sending the signal to and there's a there's a functional disruption in your gonadic trompin releasing i'm not going to say it correctly right Um, because it's GNRH is that we we, uh, symbolize that. And then that leads to decreased pulses and, you know, all of these, it it keeps going down the line. And so now you're not, you're you're interrupting um, surges in luteinizing hormone and um, normal follicular development and and, and anovulation and low serum estradiol. You know, so all of this, like there's a whole cascade of events that interrupts you getting your period. And it's not until you correct the low energy availability that you can restart the system. And that could take quite a while. You have to be refed for quite a while. It's not immediate. It's like there's often like a six month delay between when we really start restoring energy to when you might start restoring your period. Um, and then even after that, it takes a while to restore your bone health. I mean, that that could not, and in fact, that could, sometimes never be totally recovered. So taking this into our audience, I mean, this is so interesting to me because, you know, you're talking about gonadotropin releasing hormone and luteinizing hormone and follicular stimulating hormone and and losing your period. And then we come right into perimenopause and then menopause where, you know, the periods become irregular or you don't have them anymore. Like how is this playing out in this, in this demographic who's, you know, continuing to be very active. So let's be clear, though, that there's it may be hard to differentiate at that age because of where is it coming from. But menopause is a normal part of life. Yeah, we expect that to happen. And that happens from a different entryway than this. Right. When we're young, we expect to get our period. That's our body being healthy and thriving and and normal. And when you don't get your period, we have to make sure something else isn't going on. When you're in perimenopause, menopause, the reason you don't get your period anymore is from a different system. 
Yes. It doesn't mean we don't experience similar things. And that is, you know, right. When we stop getting, having estrogen flooding our system, it does affect our bones. It can affect the way we lay down fat. It affects our heart, our, our risk for heart disease and all of that. And we need to pay attention to that. But you expect that at that time of life, not when you're young. Yes. But what happens when you layer low energy availability and red S on top of perimenopause and menopause? Truthfully, I don't know. You know, I don't know. I mean, other than a lot of the other things we're talking about is still going on. I don't know how much it's influencing, you know, whether you're, you stop getting your period because of low energy availability versus now it's your time to stop getting your period, which, you know, so, and, and, you know, where you are in perimenopause and some of that can be assessed right through um, blood work and all of that. But you would still be experiencing the other issues in terms of repair. You're, you're, you're adding on, you know, already there are changes going on. And now, you know, when you're in, and I think you are right that this idea of, which we could really get into you know, unpacking the whole diet culture, there's the diet culture that we experience because we're in the world, we're in this world, we're in this country, and also ageism on top of that. And what it means to be aging, um, uh, you know, moving toward uh, a different phase of life. And then if you're athletic, the athletic thin ideal, which is another layer of it, um, and body acceptance. And, you know, I think all of that work is really important because it doesn't just go like we think, oh, well, at some point we just should learn to accept our bodies. But I would say that women just take it with us as we age. We don't, unless we do the work. We're just taking it with us. So, and in fact, it could even be heightened. Like maybe there was a stage where people were, uh, were uh, and now I'm talking about women, men have different pressures. Um, mm-hmm. and again, athletic men, uh, again, also have have different different or similar pressures. So, um, but what happens is now even there might be more like a, a, like a renewal of that body consciousness because of the fear of what's coming and causing to engage in really dysfunctional eating patterns, whether it is, you know, the thing about the triad is it can be inadvertent. Like we're just busy, you know, you're running, take the kids to school, you grab a bar, you know, you're, you're um, going from meeting to meeting. And again, so you grab a yogurt for lunch, like you're just not getting it enough because you're busy. And then it can be more purposeful, like you're trying to diet and you're skipping meals or limiting whole food groups because you're trying some new fad or so there's so many different reasons and the end the result is the same the difference is how you're going to respond to correct it is different if you are um really pursuing that thin ideal versus it's inadvertent and i just got to organize better and time management is an issue and and all of that so i would say that um one this could be going on a long time even though you're hitting perimenopause menopause and maybe never had a regular period, but it does, you can have a regular period and still have the triad or reds, right? It's not, it's not totally whether or not you've lost your period and all of those things like brain, like all you're saying, how do we tease out what is from the shift in our hormonal system because we're going through menopause and what is because we're low energy and we're, we're not, you know, fueling our bodies and giving our, our bodies what it needs. And, you know, as we get older too, there are more breakdown injuries. We need more recovery time, you know, all of that in terms of being more strategic in our, our training. Are we training for a sport or are we fitness enthusiasts, you know, where we're training as if we're in a sport, but we don't have any real plan and we're trying to personal best every day versus lead up to a competition and sort of do periodization with our own training. You know, and I see that a lot where it's, it's, you know, are you identifying as an athlete? Are you identifying as a former athlete? Like, how are you, you know, how are you approaching your training? Is it new to you? Um, And, and so I think sometimes also there's overtraining under eating going on because there's no real strategic plan toward goals. Yeah, I would 100%, 100% agree with that. And, and I do, I see that quite a bit. I'm wondering, you know, for the woman who's listening and is just not sure, because let's say she's menopausal and does not get a period. Um, what might she look for, you know, as far as like knowing whether or not she is in the state of low energy availability? 
Um, you know, again, that's a great question because there's so many, so much of the symptomology can come from different things, mm-hmm. right? So, so it, it can be that you are feeling, you know, really irritable, like, because you're really not feeding yourself. So irritable or brain fog, um, you know, dry, brittle hair and nails, um, decreased muscle mass, which does occur as we age, but are you not responding to your training? Is it, and is it more extreme, more, because, you know, the, the, the muscle loss that happens with age, with age is pretty gradual, right? So it's not like if you were training, you're not going to see response from your training. So if you're not really seeing adaptations, a lot of, a lot more breakdown injuries, you know, more, more often breakdown injuries. Um, cold hands and feet may or may not, you know, we're kind of teasing out what some of the things we ascribe to it. Is that what it is in terms of we, we're not, we're not moving our circulation. We're not having the energy hard to know exactly. Certainly decreased bone mineral density that can happen over time after menopause, but, um, and it is a good idea to go and get that DEXA. So at least you have a baseline to compare to. Um, slowed heart rate, slow blood pressure. You know, we expect an athlete that's trained to have low blood pressure and low heart rate, but it's the degree to that. And also like when you go from standing to sitting there, there's orthostatic hypotension. So there's certain ways that, you know, your digestive system, like I just said, are you uh, extreme constipation or um, is things, are you bloated often? And then you have to tease it out because it could come from other things. So it's, it's, it's seeing the whole thing and, and knowing, are you dieting and restricting? You know, are you eating three meals and a snack? You know, or are you actively dieting and restricting? And there's a good chance if you're actively dieting and restricting and training, then you're not feeling enough. Yeah, I mean, that what I'm hearing and I think is interesting is I think that in in if you're feeling a lot of these things, you know, I think that a lot of women are maybe quick to point to the hormonal changes, right, in the menopause transition. It it occurs to me that it is well worth your time to make an appointment with a sports nutritionist and make sure that you are fueling appropriately, right? And see what happens. Like just see if some of these things clear up. You're right. That is such a great point. You know, being curious, being open to let me explore this and see how I feel. Yeah. Because I think we do get used to our own baseline of how we feel. And and, be, and again, I'm going to say as athletes, and, and I recognize everyone who experiences this is not necessarily an athlete, but I'm coming from that place. When you're used to sort of pushing through and saying, I'm going to train, and it is a certain mindset, we just keep going, you know, and again, there's if are, are we really we're talking to females so i'm going to say you know again you're taking care of your kids or you're taking care of your your parents or you're taking care of your life and it's just you keep going and you don't you don't stop because you're not feeling great you push through that but and and of course not every day we're going to feel great so it's not about every day feeling great but it is about recognizing like it's you're not supposed to feel sore all the time right? You're not supposed to wake up every day and be tired, even if you slept well. Yeah. There's a difference between feeling dead-legged, which is a pretty good sign that you don't not get enough carbs versus like, okay, I didn't sleep well and I'm tired today. You know, there's sort of this core fatigue versus like, okay, I'm not as on today. And I think I th- and I, I I have many friends who, you know, as we commiserate each day and how our, you know, days are going, I know which ones aren't feeling like they don't, they're resistant, they're tied into their body and their food and their patterns, but I, I know which ones it's pretty, it's, I can tell, right. I mean, even in talking to them, how much you're thinking about food, how much food causes anxiety, you know, how much you're like, how much it's consuming and driving you. Those are all sort of that that gets more into the slippery slope between, you know, again, it's inadvertent versus a little bit more of disordered eating. There are a lot of people with disordered eating. Oh, boy, there are. I mean, and and this audience, I mean, this is a very high demographic for disordered eating and eating disorders because because of the changes that happen with body composition during this time of life and with the menopause changes, it drives those behaviors. So even, you know, what they've 
found and what we definitely see in the audience is even people who have been on kind of stable ground for a while, the, the ground gets shaky again. And those behaviors come back up because that's what they've always defaulted to. You know, like I'm going to eat less and I'm going to move more, you know, and it's, it's just so, so entrenched that, and it, as you're mentioning, can just really backfire on you. Well, you know, this sort of brings, so I have this, this two world uh, experience in that I do so much work with the triad, but I, I think as you know, I've also written this book called the whole body reset, which is how to eat for midlife and beyond. And, you know, it is in recognition that we do lose muscle each year and, eating less is so not the answer. We do need more protein as we age. It is, it will help along with the strength training. And I think at default, again, I'm going to speak to my age group. You know, I grew up and it was, if you have a pair of sneakers, you're good to go, you know, and it was all about cardio. It was, you know, how many miles can you run? Get on that elliptical, get on that Stairmaster. You know, it was all about, you know, row. It was cardio was king. I think that's changed for the younger generation, but um, but strength training is just imperative, becomes more important as you're in menopause, really important because that is drastic change in our body, um, in, in our, in our, uh, how we lay down fat and that strength training will help you maintain your muscle. We do not, our metabolism does not lower when we go through menopause, right? Our metabolism stays the same. We are able that our cells are able to do what they need to do. What happens is because starting between 30 and 40, we begin to lose muscle about a little less than 1% per year. Between age 40 and 60, that's a big change. We've lost a lot of muscle if we're not doing anything to counter it. And our metabolism lowers because we have less actively active tissue, we have less muscle, which is what our metabolism is. So it's not that our, our body isn't ability, it doesn't have the ability to metabolize, it's that we have less muscle to metabolize. And so having a little bit more protein, about 25 grams, three times or four times a day, coupled with strength training, will help you maintain your muscle, which is crucial for health and well-being across the board. Blood sugar, cognition, strength, bone health, you know, all of so many of these things that we think of as inevitable parts of aging has to do with lowering our muscle. Amen. No, I mean, I, I wish I could like write that in space <laughs> so everybody could see it like all the time. Um, I would I would also like to sort of move next to the next macronutrient over, however, and talk about carbohydrates, you know, because we talk a lot about protein and that's all essential and true. I feel like when we talk about low energy availability, a lot of times we're talking insufficient carbohydrate, though, correct? Like, um, because of because it is that energy source. And, you know, Louise Burke has done some really interesting research on insufficient carb restriction versus calorie restriction, you know, and that, and, and it's really the carbs sort of driving a lot of this. And I'd love for, to get your take on some of that. I, mean, I think it's, you know, I, I don't want to, it's just amazing. The carb phobia out there. It's just amazing. And carbohydrates, first of all, goes across all food groups, right? So I think you know, when we say carbs, people think immediately of bread and pasta and potatoes. But carbohydrates go across food groups. It's in fruit, it's in vegetables, it's in milk, it's in yogurt, it's in all those whole grains and beans. And um, uh, and so it's in all of this nutrient-rich food, right? It's in plant-based foods, which give us phytonutrients and are the vehicles through which we get Vitamin C, which helps with collagen repair and tissue formation. It's where we, you know, it's so, it is so essential. To, uh, and then it is our fuel source for, for so much of what we do. So I don't really get the carb phobia. Um, and we also have this all or none thinking. So it's not like figuring out. So it is true. If you're running a marathon, you need more carbs than if you're sedentary. Absolutely. But if you're sedentary, you still have a core diet that you need, which can include, it should include carbohydrates. And then it's like, how much more do you add? How more active you are? But you never go to none. So I think, again, it's buying into all of these messages and fears and figuring out what's the right amount for me in the activity that I do and that I am entitled and it's necessary for me. And 
then, you know, and our muscles can't tell the difference if it's coming from gummy bears or whole grains, right? Or, or, or stir fry. Like our muscles going to use whatever, it all gets broken down to glucose and our muscles take it in, our, you know, liver takes it in, our brain uses it. But of course we care about, there, you know, of course our, our cells care about whether we're getting in vitamin C or B vitamins or, you know, our, and we need calcium for like, so of course we care about nutrients, but your muscle is going to use what you give it. So this fear that if I eat carbohydrate, it's going to go directly to fat and then we get into whole fat phobia. It's a different conversation, but it's just, that's not how it works. Our bodies perfectly know how to handle carbohydrate, how to utilize carbohydrate and the damage. And, and I do a lot of work when I work with female athletes um, in the triad to, again, this idea of unless I change their attitude, it's hard to change their behavior. So I do a lot of work in looking at what's the fear, what's your, you know, what, what do you think around this? What do you think will happen? And then recognizing, you know, food's role in also it's functional, it's nourishing, but it's pleasurable, it's celebratory, you know, all the different roles that food plays in our life and sort of getting away from being so rigid in our thinking. Yeah, a hundred percent. I mean, do you, you know, you had mentioned sort of like the ballpark ranges of, of protein. Do you also give ranges of carbohydrate to your clients? Definitely, you know, and so if you're sedentary, it's a certain range. And as you increase in your activity, there's a greater range until you're up to, you know, you know, one of the you know highest, more intense levels. And, you know, it could be up to 10 grams per kilogram of body weight, depending on who you are and what you're doing. So and and that is the same, really, if you're male or female, but of course, your body sizes are different. So less amount, um, it'll be a less amount, but it could still be a similar um sort of number based on your your weight and your activity. And it's also important on rest days, right? Like a lot of people will not eat carbs on the recovery days. And I'm always like, you actually need them. Yes. Well, and also because most people while they're training, it is hard to even keep up with what their needs are. And rest days are part of when you're recovering as part of your recovery. So I mean, it, it is true that on your rest day, you might not have your pre snack or your recovery. And so that's limiting the amount that you're taking in, but you're still having your meals. Right. And again, it's not this all or none because your rest days, and I really try again because there's often over-exercising that's occurring along with the restriction. So it's sort of like I'll see people who are working out seven days a week and they're very proud of that. They use that as a badge of their you know, determination and commitment to their sport or their training. And it's like, well, actually hard, easy days and a rest day is imperative if you want to see improvement over time, because we need that time to restore all that glycogen um, in our muscles and to allow repair to go on in our body and to come back. So, uh, but again, what I'll see is people like, and I see this all the time, even in in, in dancers, you know, like they'll just under eat during the week, just because again, their, their, their schedules are so very busy. And then on the weekend, now it's a little different when you're working. Sometimes it's the flip, like you may be under eating while you're, you know, but you, so you, you know, you under eat during the week and then you overeat on the weekend because you just have a little more time and you're not as stressed with your work day. And, you know, and then you come back Monday feeling strong because yeah, it's because you also got to eat more. But what you're speaking to is the flip is where it's like, okay, now it's my rest day. I can't eat. And that, that is not helpful to your recovery. Following along this, this, this trajectory, I'm sure that you have heard plenty of people come to you with intermittent fasting and fasted training, and you know they want to become a better fat burner by doing these things. Um, I would love to hear your thoughts on that practice. Well, first of all, intermittent fasting is a little different than fasted training, right? There, um, because again, one could be a little bit more strategic and 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 not an everyday thing. And, and, um, but intermittent fasting, I just have, um, and I know there's more research and I'll, I'll change my mind if I see research that supports something different than what I'm going to say now. But from what I see now is that there just really is a lot of the research are in, in rats, not on people. Um, the, the effects of intermittent fasting vary based on people and there's a lot of different kind of intermittent fasting like you know there's a five hour window are you fasting for a day and you know but from 
if we're talking about from menopause on going back to you know the whole body reset and what we see is that you need to hit if you want to maintain your muscle right you need to hit that 25 grams of protein in the morning to press that anabolic button to the muscle building button and if you miss that you're in a muscle loss place so with intermittent fasting and the studies that i've seen where they looked at control for calories calories matter both control for calories both groups lost weight but when you lose weight first of all you hurt your bone but you also lose muscle now typically you use about 30 percent muscle that's no matter how you like you're going to lose weight you're going to lose it with intermittent fasting the people who lost weight lost 60 percent from muscle so both groups lost weight but they didn't lose the same amount of fat and it's weight loss is really about fat loss not about muscle loss and muscle is hard to come by as we age we want to maintain what we got and you know if we can continue to put on so it's a terrible strategy and then if we want to add which i don't think they've really looked at other things like what's your cortisol level what's your sleep light what is your history with food and those who are more prone to disordered eating or eating disorders um you know definitely could be very triggering and so we don't know about some of these other kinds of um you know markers to be paying attention to and the benefits i don't i don't see the benefits over the the drawbacks so i don't recommend it and then i but do i think that if you're somebody who um you know has again like under eats during the day overeats at night eats dinner and then is still hungry because you're really under fueled and so you can recognize you've eaten a good dinner but i have what I, I call it like residual hunger and then your refrigerator surfing all night till you go to sleep do i think it's better to bring your calories earlier and then yeah you want to give your pancreas a break from pumping out insulin all like it's great to take a break so you want to intermittent fast that's what sleep is for you know don't you know stop at eight o'clock and then eat again the next morning at eight that's 12 hours you've just done an intermittent fast you know like that's good for some people again who are really training hard and pushing it's good to have a little bit of protein before bed it could be helpful so you know there's that whole thing is it helpful to actually eat before not a whole lot so it interferes with your sleep and you're still digesting there's so there's there's even reason to say it's not a good idea based on what your goals are um for you know in terms of that, like you purposely should eat but in general I do, I say, okay, if you want, just stop eating after dinner and start the next morning, 12 hours. That's great. I love that. And I, I, what you said about the, I didn't know that about the muscle loss. I mean, I knew with the weight loss and the muscle loss, you always lose some, but that is a staggering statistic. And that's, that's really just, that's not good. <laughs> and, you know, we can, you, the reason to spread protein out throughout the day is because we can't synthesize it all if we just put it in one massive little one hour window, right? Like that. So you don't store protein like you store carbohydrate. Right. You don't store it. So you need it and you need it throughout the day. I don't mean eating constantly. I mean it well, it's like, you know, so right, you're not you can't save it up. In fact, the typical American diet looks more like, you know, 10 grams at breakfast, 15 or 20 at lunch and then like 60 at dinner. So I mean, you can enjoy 60 grams of protein because maybe it tastes good and you know, some of your, your protein's not going all for your muscle. It's for, but you're not using all of that 60 grams that's going to go of that protein for protein purpose, you know, so there's, it makes more sense to go to, to just 30, 30, 30, you know, 25, 25, to spread it out throughout the day and not have so much at that one time. So again, this is not a high protein diet that we're talking about. It's adequate protein. It is more than the 0.8 that's recommended for the general population. Those studies were first of all done with younger people. You know, again, when you're young, you drink a glass of milk, it sort of all goes to, you know, muscle building, you know, because you're in a growth phase. As we're older, we need more to stimulate that muscle building button. Excellent. Before we leave fasting, I would like your thoughts on fasted training, because that is uh, persistent, too, that I'm going to be this great fat burner because I'm fasted training. Yeah. Um, I have to say, I'm I'm a little unclear on that. It's, it's you know, um, I'm not a big fan. Okay, so I think it's okay. You, you can certainly do that if you want to do one or two trainings a week fasted and you does that give you a little metabolic flexibility, but you know, you're gonna, you wouldn't want to do that for a performance day. You wouldn't want to do that when you're really trying to race. Um, I think 
there's other reasons again not to do that and to have your 15 to 25 grams of carbohydrate before you work out help your workout be more intense in the end at the end of the day you're training harder getting better response on that again as we get older um sort of controlling a bit for cortisol um and so i'm not a big fan of it i know it's a popular practice and Again, I, I'm not like opposed to it if you want to do it one or two times a week as part of your strategic overall plan, but it's not something that I'm that I really highly recommend. Excellent, excellent. I do like I, I I I read the advice in your book that you know regardless of what you're eating that you like people to eat like two thirds of their calories in the first two third part of the day, you know part of the day. And I honestly think that for myself, that's like the best advice that I have done myself. I always ate breakfast, but I never ate enough breakfast. Like, and I would be hungry very shortly after and doing that residual hunger thing that you were talking about. But I was like, I shouldn't be eating that much more in the morning. And finally, I was just like, forget it. I'm just going to eat like, a, like I'm going to eat. I wake up hungry. I'm going to eat. And everything got better. My energy got better. I wasn't snacking. I wasn't hungry. My blood sugar got better. Everything got better. It's amazing. I mean, first of all, we, we don't all respond the same to the same like scenario, but there is there is actually a hormone that elevates when you undereat during the day. So it does get you hungrier as the day goes on, right? And then people compensate over because like, you know, if you eat when you're hungry, it's easier to stop when you're full. If you wait till you're starving, you're more likely to eat till you're stuffed. Um, Dan Bernadotte did a lot of work with um, caloric distribution. Um, and I, I think that's, he has informed my work over these years, probably more than anyone. And, you know, really looking again at body composition and all of these other uh, markers and, you know, distributing your calories more evenly through the day. I mean, it, 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 it works. It makes sense. Right. And it's the same. It's, you know, so you can. Yeah. So there's not, I don't know what uh, I'll belabor that, but. <laughs> um. I'd like to talk a little bit about mindful and intuitive eating, you know, for this audience. I love these concepts on paper. I do think they get a little stickier when we're talking about women who are doing long, hard workouts. You know, I know that often if you're you're following a schedule, like you might not be hungry after your your long, hard workout. And food is often the last thing I want after a, a big race or event. But I know I need something. I'm not I'm not always hungry before it either. So like what do how do we help like this fueling for training and this intuitive piece coexist? I think you're spot on. I think that what, as an athlete, you use the intuitive eating model and thoughts and mindful eating around mealtime, like around, you know, what do I feel like eating today? I don't have to eat exactly the same thing today. I want crunchy or I want smooth or I want hot or I want cold. You know, I really want to bite into a sandwich or I really, you know, like you can, you can use that to sort of, um, yeah, to just decide and, and have more variety and more satisfaction from your food. But as an athlete, sometimes you just have to be more strategic because you do have a schedule and you have to recognize, you know, I'm going to have this hard training after work. So at four o'clock, I really have to have a snack. I eat at 12. I can't wait till after my training. So I might not be as, I might like want a smaller snack. I know I have to have a little bit more of a snack or else I'm not going to have a good training. And after training, just like you said, often until you cool down and hydrate, you're not hungry. And then your hunger hits like the athletes. Oh, yeah. right? They're not, and then they get, and then it's like fall off that hunger cliff. Right. And so that practice should recognize, you know, help you recognize this uh, uh, in addition to, you know, eating in that window, because there's all of these, you know, your hormones, your, your the enzymes are there to help that glycogen get in. And you're, it's also good because it helps you meet your caloric needs and allows you to be sane and enjoy your meal later, because it will help sort of take that edge off that starvation. That's a strong word, but that real hunger that, that hits later on. And so that's where it can't be intuitive. That's where it's strategic. You know, sometimes eating is strategic and functional when you're training. And if you, you're in this for day in and day out, you know, think of it like a conveyor belt. You keep going, even a conveyor belt, you know, you have to give it rest and do some repair in order to let it live a longer life. You know, if you're in this for the long haul, you have to be sometimes strategic. And that means eating before, during, and after your training based on what you're doing to make, to make your body work. Yeah, that's, that, that is great, great advice. Cause I, I definitely, when I don't 
when I don't eat strategically, I fall prey to all of that. Where all of a sudden I, I will eat off my own arm just to like, like I have a giant hole that I can't fill. So, And you can't be mindful when you're that hungry. Yeah. When, but you can be mindful when you're, when your body is satisfied, right? You, you can be, okay, I can pause and I can think now and I can really tune into like, what am I in the mood for here? And how hungry am I? You can assess where you are on the hunger scale when when you when you're not so hungry that it doesn't matter what you eat because you get fr- you know you get frantic right like your nervous your your nerve your nervous system is is going off how important do you think is um tracking i mean do you have people track you know there's so many you can take your phone and track every single thing you eat you can take pictures of it and track your macronutrients you can track all of this like where do you come down on the importance or not of tracking I'm not a big fan of tracking. I think it's a very external way. So again, it goes against this idea of mindful and intuitive and listening to your body. I think tracking in the beginning, like I do have people keep a food journal initially because, um, but I'm not really, uh, nobody's counting their calories. Um, it's tracking in the beginning. It's or, or just, a, it's actually not tracking though. I just have them keep a journal. So I can see your patterns, um, how at least you're training, how you're feeling sort of distribution of calories. So, and if you want to track, that's okay. I think tracking, I think tracking for a short time can be very eye-opening for in both ways, not to, not to make sure you're, um, not to make sure you're eating too little, like I'm not going to eat, but more that you're eating enough because you don't realize, like, again, all of people who are, um, you know, oh, I got enough, uh, I got enough carbs and they put a half a cup of beans on their salad and they think that was enough. And then they realize, well, that, you know, that wasn't, that was a third of what they really needed. So I'm not looking at calories, but I'm looking, did you hit enough carbohydrate or enough protein or enough fat? Like I had fat, I had five almonds. Well, no, but you really needed 20 to 30 at that meal and you got five and you don't know that till you kind of see what you're doing. So I think tracking can be a helpful awareness tool, but I don't recommend it long-term because once you've done it for a while, a little bit, you I mean, you, you know what the foods are, you know, and, and it's not down to the minutia. It's really more holistic than that. After you get a sense of how much, like I need a cup and a half of starch. So, you know, if I have a, like a cup and a quarter one day that, you know, like it's not, that's not what's throwing me, but I'm not having a half a cup. And so once you do it a little while, you get a sense of it. Now you're good to go. Right. And now it's interchangeable. So it's whether I'm having potatoes or I'm having rice or I'm having noodles or I'm having quinoa, you know, or whatever cereal, like whatever it is, you get the hang. So that would be I don't like the external nature. I think it can be helpful if it's you're using it as awareness sort of technique for a little while, but then let it go. Excellent. 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 So the last question I have, and it's probably the hardest question to answer, is the mental piece. Yeah. You know, so. You know, we we have a number of women I've heard from them, and I'm sure there are legions more I have not heard from um, who are in a chronic state of this, you know, who have been dieting on and off, if not more on than off for a long time, if not their whole lives. Right. And, you know, they're in this chronic state of low energy availability and it's it is intentional. They are afraid of because of the whole diet culture, because of the whole um, these ideas that have been drilled into us lighter is better, carbs are evil, all this, where do they start? I think you start with your self dialogue and trying to make peace with yourself and your body and being more um, sort of this idea of gentle nutrition and self-compassion. So as I said before, when you change your mind, it's easier to change your behavior. And if you do really recognize what's your goal, if your goal is to be thin, then I guess dieting is the way to go. If your goal is to have power and strength and stamina and mobility and be healthy, then thinner does not equate to healthier. And in fact, quite the opposite. And so I think once you really do recognize and shift your goals to function and health, you can let go. It's easier to let go of that sort of control, distraction, obsession with thin. Um, and when you let go of moralizing around food and normalizing food, so stop using words like cheat 
and clean eating, like cheating right away. What does that imply? And I'm not cheating. I'm eating. It's like a food, like food's not good or bad. I'm not good. I'm not bad because I ate a cupcake. I'm like, I ate a cupcake, like, you know, and, and I'm not good because I ate carrots, right? I might like carrots and with hummus there or a yogurt dip, like they're a really good snack that satisfies and helps me bridge the gap to dinner, but I'm not good because they were low calorie. In fact, they're not enough unless I pair it with something, right? And sometimes I just want to eat a cookie, you know? And so I eat a cookie. And if I give myself permission to eat a cookie, I can have it today, tomorrow, the next day. I don't have to eat them all now, right? So um, I think I think how, you know, and again, all these popular diets out there, which like, are, and even this intermittent fasting or having a cheat day, I mean, it sets you up to binge and to feel guilty. And the only time you should feel guilty about something you ate is if you stole it. <laughs> and the only time food's not clean is if it fell in the mud, you know, like these words are so loaded. So careful about the language. And then also even engaging in fat talk. It's so normalized. You know, oh, I feel, look at me, I'm so fat. Oh, no, you're not fat, I'm fat. Oh, no, you know, look at your your legs are stick, mine. And that seems normative and that we're commiserating with each other, but really those who engage in fat talk have the most body dissatisfaction. It's damaging to the people who engage. It's damaging to people who hear it. It makes it normative for women to not like their bodies. How about if we own our bodies? I look great. I am strong. I, I mean, I don't even have to talk about my body. I mean, there's this idea of body positivity. And it really doesn't mean you always have to, you know, like, I love my husband. It's not because I think he's perfect. You know, or I love my child. I recognize, like, whatever, like, everything about. So you can love your body. It doesn't mean you have to think your body is perfect. Or you can do, so that's body positivity. But it's shifting. It doesn't, I it think it's misinterpreted that we're supposed to be like, Oh, you know, and then there's body um, acceptance, which is just I accept my body. And I again, I, I'm just happy that my my legs have taken me through this world. I've climbed mountains. I've um, carried a child, you know, I've, you know, I've done all these things. And then there's body neutrality, which is just it's a, like, I don't have to judge it. I don't have to think about it, you know. So again, there's there's so much to it. I can't solve the whole mental piece of this little piece, but I think there is a lot of work we can do in changing our di our self dialogue, how we talk to ourselves, and how we talk about food. Um, that helps to take the emphasis away and more toward what our goals are, our functional goals. Function, function over. That's that is perfect, and I. I could not agree more. I, I try very, very hard to sort of get that message out there that when you when you say bad things about your body, you're making other people feel bad about their bodies. You know, and I know that's not your intent, but it's it's contagious. It's it's what happens. And I it's it's so insidious. So it's so great to just like I that's why I always start with the the strong piece. Like, let's get you strong. Let's get you feeling strong. I think that if you can start there. The rest of those dialogue dominoes can start to fall. And we can change the dialogue. You know, we can. We can stop it when it's happening. You know, you could ignore it or you can even just say, oh, you know, let's talk about that movie I saw last night. Or let's talk <laughs> like you can change the dialogue. And again, I I think when I work with some of my clients, the things that I love that I hear from them is when they say, oh, I've learned to block them. Because part of it is like, again, depending on the age, you can't control everything around you. So I try to change self, right? So I love when I'm working with a young woman who says, I now block the noise. Like I have, I can hear it and I don't participate. Doesn't, I'm not engaging in that, you know, I, and, and once you become aware, you realize how prevalent it is, how much it's all around us. Right. And so I love when they feel empowered to, to differentiate, to not, to not feel like they have to try every new diet that's out there where they can figure out what's right for their body, eat more or less, because, you know, it's whatever it's right for, because I know what I need right now. I know what I ate before, you know, I know what's coming up and this is what I need. And it's not influenced by what everyone else is doing, you know, and that, that differentiation is a hard thing, no matter what our age, but it's so important. Okay. That's our show. Come on back next week when I sit down with Lisa Alfano of Try to Surf, 
a company devoted to encouraging triathletes to surf and surfers to try triathlon, and actually for all midlife women to get out and try something a little different and enjoy life. So come on back for that one. And until then, as always, stay feisty. You've been listening to Hit Play, Not Pause, a feisty menopause podcast for active, performance-minded women. I'm your host, Celine Yeager. The show is edited and produced by the strong, talented, and amazing women at Live Feisty Media. Follow us on social media at Feisty Menopause, and please help us spread the word. Screenshot and share this episode on your social media channels with the tag at Feisty Menopause. Share the show with your friends, and please subscribe, like, review, and rate this show wherever you get your podcasts. Word of mouth and good reviews make it easier for other listeners to find. Thanks for listening, and as always, stay feisty. Stay feisty.